You are listening to What Shouldn't Be There, Episode 2, It Lies Beneath. Olivier speaking, uh, had an eventful day, so I thought I would record another check-in. I actually had a visitor at the house today. The knock at the door made me nearly jump out of my skin. I've gotten used to the quiet solitude of a house in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it was actually Atticus Bain, the lawyer who reached out to me a few weeks ago. He was the one that told me my dad had left his entire estate to me and helped me with all of that. While I think it's a little strange that a lawyer is making house calls, he dropped off a lockbox, which is way too interesting for me to think about anything else at this moment. He explained uh, Dad had left it with him for safekeeping, but in light of recent events, he thought I ought to have it. There is one glaring issue. It didn't come with a key. If I'm lucky, the key is stashed somewhere in this house. If I'm unlucky, the key is buried somewhere in the surrounding acres of forest. Mm, at this moment, both are equally probable. Regardless, I'm going to keep looking here. Since the floor is only visible in about 30% of the house, there are obviously a lot of boxes I haven't gone through yet. Also, Atticus did mention a basement when I picked up the house key that I have yet to find the entrance for. Anywho, that's enough about locked boxes and missing keys. I found something interesting. Another one of those weird files? I know my dad was a private investigator of sorts, but how did he manage to attract so many weirdos? I think I should make it a tradition to read one file per recording. Hmm? It's an easy way for me to reference them when I'm not physically here, and... This entire house is a damn fire hazard, so I would hate to lose anything, especially the fun ones. So I'm recording case 178, date initially logged as September 17th, 1996, from somewhere in Oregon. The file contains a letter from a Tyler Monet, a self-proclaimed expert urban explorer. It reads... If you're going to tell me I'm crazy, stop reading now. I know what I saw, and I don't care what the police said. There's no logical explanation for what happened, for what I saw, and for what happened to Ronnie. Let me give you some context. Ronnie and I are urban explorers. That's actually how we met, if you can believe it. We've been to close to a hundred abandoned sites, and that's not including the ones we trekked individually. Urban exploration, if you didn't know, is when you go to abandoned, man-made sites. These places are often in different stages of decay and generally not open to the public. It's unbelievably thrilling to visit a place that nobody has touched in decades that used to be full of life. Each location is wildly different unique in its history and atmosphere, so it was a hobby that could never grow old. 
Sure, we had some sights be a bust, and we had the occasional run-in with a security guard, but I could never get enough of the buzz of a new sight. Ronnie and I actually have somewhat of an online presence in the urban exploration community, so it wasn't out of the ordinary when an anonymous tip pointed us to Auntie's. Auntie's Whirlpool and Aquarium was a small, aquatic attraction that had its heyday in the early 70s. Featuring a small animal exhibit alongside a pool, it was a pretty popular spot for the locals. The reports called it an accident. A major malfunction with the site's pool system, and most people agree that's probably what happened, but there are some rumors. Regardless, uh, four people drowned, two being children, and Auntie's hasn't been open since. It's become a bit of an urban legend. It was nearly impossible to find the original location due to lost documentation and alleged cover-ups from the city council at the time. So, for someone to not only find it, but send the coordinates our way, I was thrilled. Auntie's was tucked about 20 miles west off the main highway in the neighboring forest area. There was nothing listed on the map for the location, or anything else for the matter, for miles around it. We honestly thought there was a chance we were being pranked, but we followed the directions from the Anon exactly and ended up finding a dirt road. It wasn't marked on the maps, so the town literally hit a road so nobody would find this place. After driving for about 10 minutes or so, we finally found it. We parked a little before what would have been the parking lot off the road to hide the car and not draw attention, and then walked to the front gates. The night sky gave just enough light to illuminate the giant purple and blue banner that said Auntie's with a small cartoon stingray to greet us. It was tattered and sun-bleached, but it was still there. An iron chain and padlock kept the gate closed, but that is why we bring bolt cutters. The entire place was intact. It was like that last day had been preserved and frozen in time. Nothing was torn down or vandalized. It's extremely rare to find an untouched site, so we were overwhelmed with giddiness as we continued inside. The park seemed to be split into two sides. To the right, there was a large pool with three slides leading into it from the side opposite to us, and on the left, there was a rectangular building that stretched to the end of the park. Between these two sections, several stalls that looked like they were food or merch vendors were laid astrew. Since it was night, uh, we were primarily using flashlights to see where we were going, so we had to stay close so we wouldn't accidentally get injured. Of course, I had to check out the pool first, and I was shocked to find there was still water inside. It was completely black in the low light, and there was something mossy floating on the surface and little clusters. It looked thick, like syrup, and had a really strong odor. I shone my flashlight across the water, and I felt a sinking feeling in my stomach. I don't get scared at sights. Ronnie is usually the scary cat, not me. But for some reason, I felt wrong. Like... When your body starts to panic about something before your mind can figure out what for. Then, just for a moment, 
I thought I saw something moving in the water. But then, uh, Ronnie took a photo without warning, and the flash blinded me for a second, making me laugh. Maybe I was feeling nervous since it was the sight of a tragedy, or because it was something I'd been looking for for years so my brain was just overloaded. I decided to shrug it off. Ronnie is the photographer, by the way. Uh, a lot of people can't participate in urban exploration, so he'd always make sure to snap as many photos as possible so we could share them online. This site was the most important find of our careers, I guess you could say, so Bronny ended up bringing three disposable cameras, just in case anything got corrupted. Anyways, uh, I didn't tell Bronny what I was feeling or what I saw. He was just so excited, and I didn't want to scare him. That's probably my biggest regret in all of this, I think. I didn't even give him a chance. After my eyes recovered from the flash, uh, I could no longer see any movement in the water, so it kind of just reaffirmed my thought that I was just imagining things. I suggested we check out the aquarium, though, to get away from the water's edge, just in case. The aquarium's entrance was made to look like a shark's mouth, so visitors would have to walk underneath rows of pointed teeth. The wood was rotting, and a few teeth had eroded completely. The doors were shut but not locked, so with a few good heaves, we were inside. The smell hit you first, and I had to hold back gags. An overwhelming smell of mildew hung in the air, a stench only found in places with old, stagnant water. The aquarium itself was simply laid out. A large water tank stretched against the back wall for the length of the room, and a narrow walkway followed alongside it to a door at the far end. Some of the ceiling had caved in, and there was some informational pamphlets and signage spread across the floor, but otherwise it was fully intact. The most ominous thing, though, was the water tank. It was huge, so much bigger than expected from the outside, and was at least eight feet tall. You could hear water sloshing inside, but our flashlights could only pierce through a few feet into the tank, leaving so much of the depths unseen. It was like looking into a deep, dark pit, completely inconceivable to the naked eye. That same feeling of uneasiness crept over me again. I don't think it helped that I looked up and noticed there was an opening on the top, so you could potentially climb up and crawl into the black water of the tank if you wanted. Or I guess something could crawl out. I was starting to freak myself out, but I tried to remain calm. Ronnie was over the moon, snapping shots with me and the water tank from all angles. I just needed to get a grip. Even if things were abandoned, god forbidden, there was no way anything in that water tank would still be alive. There was nothing in the tank. To kind of give myself some time to settle down, I walked to the far end to check out the next room. I didn't want to be next to the water anymore. It was a little store with miscellaneous merchandise still left on the shelves, so there was keychains and plush animals of little sea creatures that smiled down at me. I just kept thinking to myself, we need a few more shots in here, maybe a few of the exterior, and then we could go. I just needed to hold it together for like 20 more minutes, tops. 
That's when Ronnie called out to me. Why do you think the water's moving? I froze in my steps. The tanks shouldn't be on because this place isn't electricity, so how is... And then all I could hear was screaming. I sprinted back towards the tank room, and Ronnie's flashlight was on the ground next to his camera. The rest of the room was in complete darkness. I pointed my flashlight down the hall to see Ronnie suspended in mid-air with something wrapping its coils around his throat. His screams were being choked by water rushing down his throat from the tank, making the stench in the air worse from the rush of water overflowing the top. I couldn't make out what was holding him. All I could see that there was something that was clinging to the edge of the tank with glowing eyes and it had its hands on Ronnie. Before I could even get a step in the door, it dragged Ronnie into the tank. I could hear thrashing in the water, but I couldn't see Ronnie. The water thrown out of the tank made the entire area slippery, making it impossible for me to climb up it. I grabbed the bolt cutters with both hands and began trying to break the glass. I can't tell you how many times I swung at that glass, and I don't even know when I started crying. I had barely gotten a crack when the water stopped moving again. I wailed for Ronnie's name for hours, and nobody answered. It wasn't until sunrise that I had driven to the police station to explain what had happened. Of course, they thought I was nuts, but they humored me by going to auntie's. That's when it got worse. When we arrived, there was no water. There was no water in the tank, or in the pool. It was completely dry and empty. Not even me being soaked to the bone changed their mind. They even almost arrested me for trespassing. There was no water, and there was no Ronnie. It's been a year, and I know Ronnie isn't coming back. I don't know what happened, but what I do know is this. Ronnie was taken by something that night, and I just can't stop thinking about how many people were also sent those coordinates to aunties. Um, alongside this letter, there are actually several things in this file. A set of coordinates that does in fact lead to nowhere, corroborating what Tyler had said originally. Separate from this is a secondary packet, actually, and there's a single photograph labeled as found on location, with the date October 8th, 1996. The photo is of a man next to a large pool, so we can assume it's Tyler. The pool does look very much filled with water, and there is, just ever so faintly, something that looks like a hand reaching up out of the water towards Tyler. A police report for the disappearance is copied in here as well, and states that there was no water present at the alleged crime scene, so how is there water in this photograph? Is this edited or from a different location? Finally, there's a, a newspaper clipping regarding a fire that burnt down Auntie's Whirlpool and Aquarium the same time frame this photograph was recovered. Now, I'm not going to make any assumptions here on what or who started that fire, but 
I'm guessing there's a reason why this file was labeled solved. I think that's enough for today, but I'll set this to the side for now. I would love to talk to Tyler and discuss what exactly he saw that night and why he reached out to my dad about it. Signing off. What Shouldn't Be There is a horror anthology podcast premiering weekly on Fridays, available where all good podcasts go to lie. Today's episode was written and performed by Noelle Whitmire. For more information, please visit our socials. It will be waiting for you.